Okay, we're live. This is this one does have is distinguished because we've had we have the most participants on this one of any that we've done. Yeah, well, I kind of let the panel look. Maybe you we, should make that suggestion as people come in, Rich, is that for those not familiar with Zoom, well, I guess I'm doing it now, that um, you can change your Zoom setting to show it as a panel where everyone's on the screen at the same time, as opposed to when, who, who's ever talking gets surfaced to the front. I think it's a, it ends up working out better in terms of um, the interactions if you can, anyone that's logging on right now yeah. can make that change. And I guess I'll continue that, that saying, first of all, welcome aboard to Lightshed Live. Um, there's a Q&A tab. You can put your Q&As in there or the comments. Rich, you can start. I know you love to start in this. I, lo I, I love starting off on Lightshed Live. So on behalf of Walt Pysik, Brandon Ross, I'm Rich Greenfield. We are really excited today. We have four college athletic directors. We have Columbia. Uh, we have Texas. We have Florida. We have Cal Berkeley or UC Berkeley. I, I never know exactly how I should refer to Cal Berkeley. I get confused. But we have four very large institutions. What we really tried to do for everyone watching this is we tried to bring in schools, all different types of schools and from all different regions and obviously four different conferences. So we really wanted to get a, a diversity of perspectives on kind of not just the, the stoppage of sports, but how sports restart, how colleges are being affected, and just sort of the some of the big issues even beyond. I mean, I know everyone is sort of focused on COVID, but we do hope to get beyond COVID and talk about a whole bunch of other issues from paying athletes to, you know, some of the recent changes that have happened outside of this uh, shutdown of play. But why don't we just, from a from a really high level, I guess it would be great to just start off with the actual decision to stop college athletics. How did it actually happen? I mean, we all were watching Adam Silver and we saw Mark Cuban's reaction as he sort of was shocked sitting on the court watching the game. But for each of you, maybe just give us a minute on just what was actually the process of how everything shut down. Um, you know, maybe best for Christine, why don't you start off and then we'll go around the horn. Yes, thanks. And it's great to see everybody, uh, many friends and colleagues, and thanks for this opportunity to bring us together. Uh, you know, it was sort of a, a, a fateful week. I mean, many of us had either uh, are, were in route or at our conference basketball championship sites. At least we were uh, in Kansas City. We had uh, gone up on Tuesday and uh, the news really started to crack and shake uh, Tuesday evening, all day Wednesday. Uh, our guys had a, uh, a game scheduled at 11 in the morning on Thursday. We were uh, in the in the lobby, and uh, we got news that they were being pulled off the court, which did not surprise us at that point. Our men and women's teams have the same uh, site for our postseason tournament in Kansas City. The women played an old classic Muni Coliseum. They were due to uh, begin a day later. Uh, our guys actually had the, the first quarterfinal game that day. Um, but the, uh, you know, wasn't surprising to us. We had, we had been nervous about it. Uh, the night before, we had been making plans on who could actually go to the arena if they let us. And our fans who were at our team hotel, many of them were thinking, oh, I'll get in on as your manager or whatever. We're like, no, 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 you're, you're, you guys are staying here and you can stay at the bar and watch the games. But the end, at the end of it, uh, 
got us home on two charters on Friday. Uh, we got the young people uh, settled. And then we immediately went into a staff meeting that night at six o'clock to talk about what we expected uh, because we got literally a, a text on the plane as we were taking off in the Kansas City airport that the NCAA was shutting down all championships. And we went see at six o'clock in the office and we met uh, for a long time and, and readied for what was, again, a, sh- a shocking uh, and sobering uh, spring. Scott? Yeah, similar to what Chris talked about, um, we were in Nashville at the SEC men's basketball tournament, and there are always athletic director meetings uh, surrounding that tournament. So I remember we started meeting Wednesday morning, and the meeting began by the league office passing around a proposed press release, a draft of a press release they were considering putting out, which uh, basically was going to offer refunds to anybody who decided they didn't want to come to the arena. And um, we, we discouraged them from putting, uh, and this story is going to tell you how much and how quickly things shifted in such a short period of time. We discouraged them from putting that release out. And six hours later, we voted to not allow any fans in the arena. So we went from saying, don't make too big a deal of this. Don't be putting out an alarmist type press release to that, that afternoon saying, we don't, we're, we're going to play the whole tournament with no fans, and then came back the next morning following the Rudy Gobert NBA news and banged the whole thing. So in a 24-hour period, we, we shifted pretty dramatically. Jim, what about you? Well, it's interesting. I, I think back as, a, as an AD, at the beginning of the week, one of the hardest decisions is as we were getting ready to go to Las Vegas, we made the decision not to bring our band and our spirit groups and our – cheerleaders and you know at the time it was heartbreaking to make that decision and you know then a couple days later you know we're making the decision to cancel sports and you know the spring sports and seniors and you look back and say wow I guess it wasn't such a hard decision but but at the time it just shows you how fast things change you know we're playing and, and we beat our arch rival Stanford and you know a big basketball win we're preparing for UCLA the next day and just like uh Scott and Chris we're trying to figure out what fans we're going to let into the stadium because I think we had 150 tickets and it went from that to the NBA canceled to, um, you know, we're on our way back to, uh, to Cal. So it really was, it was fast. It was, um, you know, we were in the react mode and, you know, I think it's taken us a while to go from the react mode to, you know, where we are now in the recovery mode. Peter. All right. Thanks, Rich. You know, the Ivy League was one of the first leagues to cancel. In fact, the first league to cancel their basketball tournament. And I'll never forget, it was that Tuesday, and this was pre-Utah Jazz and Rudy Gobert. And we we received notification from the Ivy League presidents that the Ivy League tournament, which was to be hosted at Harvard, was going to be canceled. We we have uh, four teams, both the men's and the women's side, that get invited each year. And so I notified our women's basketball coaches the first time we had qualified for the tournament and met with her and their team was down on the court practicing. So I walked down on the court and notified the team that they were not going to be able to compete in the Ivy League tournament. It was one of the most difficult things I'd done as an athletic director at Columbia. It was really, really difficult and challenging. The following day, we met with all of our head coaches, and we the, the, the preceding four or five days is when spring break started. And so I said, well, spring sports are still alive. We canceled the basketball tournament. I said, but anything could change in the next 24 hours. 
And literally that following day, we canceled all of our spring sports. So it was just, as everybody indicated, within a matter of 24 hours, you know, all the lights were turned off, so to speak, on both the winter sports and then also our spring sports. So one of the topics that we've talked about um, in some of our prior Light Shed Lives is, on, at the pro level at least, how athletes that have um, different, come from dim- different economic backgrounds, even at the pro level, um, how they're staying in shape, because everyone you know, figures like, hey, you snap your fingers and all of a sudden everything happens again. What, what's been the dialogue like been with the student athletes? I mean, you've got many different programs. Um, and I know there's obviously some restrictions on that. Uh, maybe, Christine, you know, if you could kind of comment on, like, how does that interaction between the universities and the students go in order to keep them in shape so if things get going that, that they're ready? Well, think about it. In our case, you know, we're, we're, they're students. So the irony of the timing of this uh, shutdown for us was that we were going into a spring break. And uh, that meant a week where, again, for some teams, it doesn't change anything. They're still competing, baseball, softball, et cetera. But for the most part, campus usually goes quiet. And our president of the university had announced almost immediately an extended spring break into two weeks because they were preparing as news got worse about COVID that we were going to be in an online learning environment. And I mean, it, at the University of Texas, which has 40,000 plus undergrads, 52,000 total students, turning that um, in-person learning experience, we were not one of the massive online course learning institutions in the country, despite the fact that Austin is a high-tech center. <laughs> because we really believe in the humanities and the in-person learning part of the experience of being on a great research campus. But think of the pivot that our institution had to make to put every course for every student online, get everybody off campus into remote learning and working. It was a huge endeavor. So that piece really came first, how we were gonna prepare to make our students locked back into academic work after a two-week hiatus, and especially for the ones that um, had had seasons canceled. I mean, at least football, volleyball, cross-country got to go through their completion, and basketball mostly, except for the conference tournament and the March Madness. It was awful. But swimming, track, all these, and in an Olympic year, devastating. All these elite athletes, and we have them. I mean, Tokyo was under the eyelids of so many of our great ones. So we had to get our staff prepared first to get ready for remote learning. Everybody home, different socioeconomic environments, who had internet, who didn't. We had to track where every single one of them was going. A lot of them are in Austin off campus, but not all of them. So that was really the first piece was the academic piece and to make sure that they were ready for learning on Monday, March 23rd, whatever that was. And and then we readjusted to the, what could we do instructionally to allow them to at least communicate with staff and coaches on an athletic side um, for what we could describe for them could be voluntary ways to stay fit, stay uh, healthy nutrition wise and to stay in shape remotely. Scott, for fall sports, when would training camps normally start? I assume football is the longest preparation time. But Yeah, you know, um, 
it's 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 interesting in the last decade how um, that has evolved, where football uh, and basketball, to a degree, several other sports also are almost year round. Um, you know, a typical year, our football players will be on. You know, they they would come in uh, after a bowl game or whatever, and after a holiday break in January, take a spring break. They would get two or three weeks at the end of the spring semester in May, come back for summer school, and and that, they'd be with us pretty much until the end of the season. Um, so, in all that time, they're they're working out, right? They're, they're they may not be practicing because there's limits on that, but they're doing. They have access to the gym, and and there's parts of that time when they have access to our strength coaches, and so. Um, you know, you're but they, but they have access to the gym if they're there, right? Have, have a lot of these student athletes gone home though? And, and then how does that work? Yeah, well, well, that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. what a typical year looks like. So, oh, sorry. Turn, sorry. No, no, in a typical year, that's what yeah. it looks like. Where it's year round. So, um, you know, I think our our medical and strength staff would say a minimum of eight weeks, as far as before season starts. Before, wow. You know that you would have time with them. Um, just to make sure that you have the ability to acclimate them positioning-wise and, and do all that. Um, what the reality will be, I don't know. I think you could probably tighten that up a little bit and still, um, you know, make sure you're keeping them safe. But uh, any much, if you tighten it up much more than six weeks, I think you really start um, risking injury and that kind of thing once you do start playing. So what's the drop-dead date for deciding on fall sports, Scott? It, is it – um, the end of June? Is it a little bit into July? I think in a perfect world right now, we would want to start having kids come back onto campus in early July, in a perfect world. As we have seen in the last couple of months, we don't live in a perfect world. <laughs> and is, is that the same across all of these schools, Peter? Yeah, a little bit different at Columbia. As some of you may know, we only play 10 football games. So we start the third week of the season. And so a football tubs typically report till right around August 20th. So we're a little bit later. You know, we, we our president made an announcement today that next year we're going to go to an academic term system where we're going to have three separate terms. So we'll have a fall term, a spring term, and a summer term. And so now we're trying to modeling out how that works within the realm of 31 sports and all the different parameters associated with that. But we our start date's a little bit a little bit earlier, later than it is from some of the Power Five schools. Uh, so we're we're looking. We have a little bit more flexibility. I would think that our our announcement on what we're going to do academically, whether it be virtual, whether it be a hybrid, or whether it be some other kind of component of being back on campus, can be delayed a little bit. I anticipate that'll come at Columbia sometime around the first part of July. And what about you guys, Jim and Christine? Is is it the same? Uh, Scott? Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I, know, I think it is. And I think, you know, I think everybody really wants to wait as long as we can so we can hear from the the medical experts on, you know, what what really is the situation when we have to finally make a decision. And we've seen so, things are happening so fast, things are changing so quickly that if you make a decision now, three months from now, you know, there may be some technology or some, you know, some type of medical breakthrough where, you know, your decision looks foolish. Uh, I think if you're really thinking about the safety of, in our case, the Cal community, our student athletes and everybody, you really want to have as good information as you can. And the longer you can wait, uh, the better off you are. So I think our chancellor's looking at midway through June as an initial decision. And then 
um, probably another couple of weeks after that to really uh, finalize what we're going to do in the fall. You know, we're, we're in a state that is opening up a little bit after May 18th for, uh, in fact, in some places it already has 25% capacity. So for the last two weeks, uh, Chris had divided our, our team up into four committees to prepare for readiness. And, and frankly, we are focused, uh, you asked about fall sports, Brandon, we're really um, hyper-focused right now on what we need to do for football because of the volume, the size of the staff, the scope of the operation, and clearly um, the, the acclimation and the prep for that six-week period of getting ready to play football, hopefully, sometime in the fall. And uh, they, they, they need readiness because most of them missed a spring practice and, and they've been training remotely. So um, we're, we're doing a, a beta today. Um, I'm in the office, which is rare. Uh, we've really tried to stay remote, but we had a beta system uh, this morning where we had our station for entry, um, temperature check, sign in, get a wristband so that everybody knows in the building you belong here. Um, and again, this is just employees that early next week related to football. I think it's barely 30 people, staff, that is going to begin to come back in to have a work day. Again, the kids are still remote. And are they wearing masks and stuff, or is it? Absolutely. And, and the only reason I don't have a mask on now is because I'm in my office by yeah. myself and my door shut. If I leave here, I'm wearing a mask. Um, so self-cleaning of offices, it's pretty amazing. And at the same time, there are six campus operations committees preparing sort of the same way for readiness for what we all hope is an in-person fall semester. So how's that going to work within conference when schools are from different states? Like if California um, doesn't allow their student athletes to come back and use the training facilities, but Texas does, is everyone in the conference going to start their training camps at the same time or, or, or the, the universities and states that are ready to open soon are going to have effectively a couple week advantage? Maybe Jim can, can hit that one since. Well, I think we've talked about it a lot. Uh, you know, we're always talking about equity and, and uh, sort of a level playing field. And I, I think during these times, it's going to be really, really difficult to get this perfect uh, level playing field in our league. You know, a few of the states are now relaxing some of the restrictions. And, you know, we had to have a, a really robust discussion on if a school has a gym that's open, is it better for the student athletes to be able to go back? They're, they're not going to have access to strength coaches, that, but they're going to be able to have access to the, to the school's facilities. Is that better for student athletes? And, you know, I think we all think that that's better for the student athletes, uh, even though it's probably a competitive advantage for some of the schools that get to do that compared to, you know, some of the schools that aren't open as early. Uh, so, yeah, some of that's just going to be what's best for the kids and, uh, and then let's try to support them. And, and what about just from a high level, and maybe Scott start off with this, but I think everyone might want to chime in. Look, it's not clear to me. I've, we've had a lot of conversation with a lot of different people. H how does decisions actually get made? Meaning, is it the school AD, meaning the four of you, the school president, the conference commissioner. I have no idea what the role of the NCAA is versus the college football playoff system versus the governor, mayor, or even president of the United States. Like, like just 
I don't know, from a high level, how does this, like, how does the sausage actually get made in terms of actually getting to a decision to play or not play from here forward? Rich, the, the nature of your question is what makes college athletics so completely American. Um, <laughs> you know, it is. You could just say yes, all of that. Exactly. It is uh, all over the map. Uh, there's a lot of jurisdictions. There's a lot of protocol. Um, you know, at the University of Florida, I would say we plug in from a governance standpoint and work closely with the other schools of the Southeastern Conference. So it's a conference base, which means commissioner has a lot of say. For the sport of football specifically, it very much is a conference-driven, you know, the, the CFP, the college football playoff, is actually governed by the conference commissioners. So it is it runs at the behest of the conferences, not at the behest of the NCAA. So um, given the, the focus on football right now, I think a lot of those decisions are going to be conference-based uh, to the extent that you can have every school in your conference under some kind of consistent state guideline that would allow you to move forward as a league. Peter, when you think about that, though, I mean, from the standpoint of students on campus, is that, you know, I mean, I guess, is it a foregone conclusion that there's no football in the fall if you don't have students at Columbia? I, I believe so. Yeah, I think and we have a little bit more flexibility in terms of football just because we don't play postseason play and we only play a 10 game schedule. So for us to potentially pivot and move to the spring would be a little bit easier than some other conferences. Uh, to your earlier point, we follow the same guidelines similar to Scott from the standpoint of obviously all these governing principles when you think about state regulation, local regulation, but ultimately I believe our Ivy League presidents will make this decision and each individual school will, will have to make a decision. The Ivy League has four, uh, six schools in urban settings and two in pretty rural settings. And so there is a scenario by which some of our campuses will be virtual in the fall and some of them may not be. And so we'll, we've had some discussions about how many teams do you need in terms of the league to compete for championships and what are the parameters associated with that. But I, I think the discussions are, are being modeled out in a lot of different scenarios, and then we can pivot based upon what takes place. But Christine, though, when we had talked originally, I remember where I first like was, you know, kind of talking to you about doing um, this discussion, you had made the comment of, we just have to play football at some point. And I, I guess the, the thing that jumps out is, given that even the people on the screen uh, are all in sort of different circumstances, you know, why not just shift everything to January or February so everyone is on sort of, you know, again, I go back to that word equity that I think Jim used. Like, why not just step back and say, okay, football starts in February. We'll do college football playoffs in May or June. And, and it's that, is, it, is that a simple solution or is that just even more complicated and problematic in and of itself? Well, again, it, you know, it could be a possibility because all of us, uh, to the points made, are working in different environments. Um, but I think I also told you a couple weeks ago when we decided this would be a great panel discussion that the, the beauty of what we're finding out right now is all of us work on campuses where collaboration with others who are, are, are again, living in the same area but have different work, it's an opportunity for us to get together. So our sports med staff are working with the health officials across campus who are making determinations, not only for our campus, but in some cases are probably in, 
influencing or talking with city officials and state officials. Um, so the, the lines of expertise on major campuses are just unbelievable in these kind of circumstances. So when you think about we've got to play football at some point, that's, that's stated with, in our case, a group of 570 young men and women on 20 sports teams who are praying that they have an opportunity to compete this fall. Our economic reality, and we've known this forever um, in college athletics, is based a lot on college football. It's where we generate our TV revenue, our donations, our ticket revenue, and it is the economic engine. So that when I go back to what we're doing here at Texas and hyper-focusing on can we get football back on campus, a group of 116 young guys and their staff, keep them healthy at whatever point that we get permission to do that on this campus, which is a remote campus this summer for learning. If we succeed and, and the city of Austin and the state of Texas are still good with suppressing the COVID curve, then we think a football fall at some point can happen. That's the goal. Because if football can't succeed, um, that's where uh, it's a sad state of affairs for what could not occur. So I think obviously we're all kind of well aware of the economics on football and how it actually funds a lot of other the programs. But when we had a, a similar forum with some of the commissioners of the conferences, it was their thought at the time that all of the sports would have to come back um, in order for any of the sports to come back. I'm not sure that that was a hard and fast for them. I'm just curious, is, is that with the way that, that all of you are thinking about it now? Where is, is it all, you know, no matter when you do football and understanding the economic importance of football, um, is it all or none? Or can there be some sports that say, look, this is a little bit higher risk. We can't really do your sport, but we can do some of these other sports. Maybe you just start with Jim and everyone kind of give their yeah, all or none <laughs> response. Yeah, I think what we're doing right now is, um, at least at Cal, we're focused on the all. Like if we can do this, we're going to try to figure out a way to allow all of our student athletes to compete. You know, we're, we're looking like almost every school in the country is that do we reduce travel? Do we have more of a local non-conference schedule? Can we do more driving than flying? Uh, to reduce costs. Uh, but I think our goal is to um, try to support all of our student athletes in the fall uh, so that they have a season and can compete. And it's just um, the severity of what we have to do is going to be determined by, you know, health officials. It's going to be determined by finances, by our chancellors and presidents. And so we're starting with what would it look like if we have them all compete? And then, you know, what do we have to adjust based on the the current environment. Is there anyone that has a different view on that? Meaning that they think that it doesn't necessarily, I mean, obviously that's the goal, but it's that there is a possibility that certain, you know, that some of the sports um, don't get reopened while others do. Um, I would only say that a lot of the focus is on football, not because that's the one we, we, uh, we think has the best chance. I think it's because that's the one that's the most challenging to bring back because of the scope, because of the numbers, because of, uh, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be in a position, maybe there's fans. All of those things make it more difficult. Now, I will say the one caveat to that, you know, some of the infectious disease experts 
that we hear from down here tend to think, and we're learning a lot, as Jim said, every day about this virus, that the, the transmission seems to not be as consistent outdoors, but it seems to be a lot more pre- prevalent indoors. And so we have been focused on football because that's the next big sport, but it makes you wonder some of the winter indoor sports, um, if there is a second wave, does that does the indoor nature of those sports and the transmittable nature of COVID make that a different kind of challenge than what we've been focused on up to this point? Although I guess we'll get some look, we'll get a live look into that, I guess, to some degree of whether the NBA actually comes back and get a sense. I mean, I, I assume you'll basically get the, the, you know, some real time data on, on whether indoor sports work or can work in a socially distanced manner, meaning without fans or whatnot, uh, knock on wood, assuming the NBA actually gets it together. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting as we talk, like I said, getting, getting the six week training camp concept through our heads and getting that all that humanity back to start with our college football program is there but we we're having conversations about all of our other sports um scott has a volleyball rival i mean we're great in volleyball in our sport and cal is a great team and columbia plays volleyball too but you know we have a great 4400 seat arena in volleyball it's a great home court advantage but if we have volleyball this fall in the COVID environment we may for a period of time have to play in the bigger arena uh, disperse and socialize it if, again, volleyball is happening here. And we sell out volleyball here. Uh, so, but we may have to put 4,400 fans in a 16,000-seat arena if we're allowed to have it rather than shoulder-to-shoulder where it's a pretty fun environment. But, Christine, that sounds like you can be then selective with sports, that some sports are doable and others might not, and that's, and that's going to be fine or that's going to be acceptable for the university. Again, the, the spirit of where we are right now is what can we do within the health officials and city officials and campus officials yep. permission parameters? And then how do we, if necessary, social distance, fans, no fans, et cetera. It applies to all. So we're thinking all, but again, if, if you really do the math, because of the volume involved in football at every level, from fans to staff to kids, um, if we can succeed in keeping people healthy and lead into what we hope is a football season, then, then that should be a pretty good blueprint for, yeah. for other things to occur at some point. As far as all of you are concerned, I think Peter said this earlier, uh, do students actually have to be on campus in order for you to, to, to play sports? I think it was Fresno State that said, oh, if a couple of um, classes are in session in person, then that's good enough. Uh, what, what are all of your perspectives, I guess, starting with Scott? I had someone tell me a week or so ago that a good uh, course of, of thinking during this is to predict nothing but prepare for everything. So, um, you know, it's hard to imagine playing sports on campus if you don't have students, but you know, Chris talked about her Olympic athletes and how much the ability to engage in athletics means to them. Um, you know, we might find ourselves in a position where we, we have a different view. Um, you know, okay may be better than bad. And so it may be okay, may not be perfect if we don't have students on campus, but we decide to play sports. That's not our preference. We may end up there. But to, right now, I think it's really speculative. I, I know a lot of these campuses are really motivated to find a way to have 
in-person classes in some form this this fall and certainly uh, the part of the country that we're in I, I see a lot of momentum toward that what about you christine do you think you guys will be in session in person in the fall and if not could could you see a scenario for sports yeah again i our goal stated by our uh, current president who is going to emory university on june 1 and we have an interim president jay hartzell the goal is to have um, a, an in-person, probably adjusted somewhat, some classes online, probably a hybrid in the fall. And that's what, again, Scott is very good friends with Chris Dalcani, our boss. He's a glass half full guy. And uh, we're going to stay staring at that half, half full glass. That's what we hope we can pull off. And Jim, you agree with that? Or Peter? Yeah, same thing for Cal. I mean, we're planning for everything from all virtual to um, everyone back and, and what's probably going to be reality is somewhere in the middle, some type of hybrid. And uh, I think with a hybrid, um, we'll, we'll follow the lead of the university to, to what we can do with athletics. From, uh, I think you're seeing a uh, Brandon. I think you're seeing a common theme. We're all trying to be as optimistic as we can. We deal yeah. with remarkable young men and young women that are student athletes, and one of the greatest part of our jobs is to support them and help them reach their potential in a variety of different aspects of their lives. And we thrive on seeing them compete. I mean, that's one of the pinnacles of our profession and our jobs. And so we want to reach the, them to reach that goal. I think we all dealt with some real difficult challenges this past spring to not see our spring sport athletes compete. And it was very, very, very challenging. And so in a perfect world, we're going to maintain that optimism as much as we want and can. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we're prepared for whatever scenarios may present themselves. Before we, you know, just one more question, kind of toward directly tied to COVID, which is, you know, you all seem like you want to get sports going, which is awesome. Obviously, Walt is super excited that EPL just announced that Premier League starts June first. I think, um, so we're all excited to see Not sports quite. start. Not quite. We're, we're getting closer. But my my we're point optimistic. is, we're optimistic, but kind of from a high level, um, it, it sort of seems crazy for all of us not to to at least scenario plan for what if somebody does get sick coach player um you know girlfriend of a player uh, whatever it may be boyfriend of a, of a volleyball whatever it may be in in terms of does it shut everything down and does everybody go home or are you all thinking about scenarios where if somebody actually got sick that you have a plan in place of that athlete quarantines for x amount of time like just how do you even begin? Because I think Adam Silver came out and said, like, if one person gets sick and we're shutting down the whole thing, why are we even bothering starting? So, like, how does that scenario planning play out right now? I don't know if, if Scott, you want to start, but I'd be curious yeah. if anyone has views on this issue. Yeah, I, you know, this, uh, again, an illustration of in two months how our thinking has shifted. I think in mid-March, um, you know, if we'd had one athlete test positive, we, we probably would have shut everything down. Um, I don't know that we feel that right way right now. My, my president here, Kent Fox, has, has made the comment that we've got to figure out a way to, to move forward and, and do what we do to support young people while living and coping in a COVID world for the time being. And uh, I, I think that means that we have to make sure we have proper health care facilities. We haven't overrun the health care facilities so that those who are sick have the ability to get tended to and treated and, and taken care of. Um, but if we have a student athlete who tests positive or, or a staff member who tests positive, which we have had during the shutdown, um, we're going to take care of that person and we're going to treat them and make sure they're well 
and we're going to do the contact tracing and we're going to test as many people as we need to test. And then once we feel like we have that taken care of and managed and under control, we're going to try to continue doing the things that we do to support our young people. Very similar at Columbia. Some of you may know our uh, soccer uh, bubble, the way we put up a seasonal bubble, was converted to a field hospital. So right now we have COVID patients in our soccer field that has a bubble over it. And that number is being reduced. Obviously, New York City was at the epicenter of, of some of the challenges around COVID. But we were grateful that we have the opportunity to support. And so as the discussions that we have with our medical personnel and the experts, not only at the med school, but also on our campus, we have to build out all of these different parameters and all of these various steps. When a situation does arise, we react in a way that is in the best interest and the well-being of these student athletes. Yeah, we're, we're talking, I know, about everything from potential segregation of our student athletes into, uh, you know, a living facility on campus, um, you know, daily screening, monitoring, temperature taking, uh, creating a secondary uh, athletic training sports med facility, which we would call an illness clinic, if you will, not just COVID, but any, any illness where somebody is, uh, whose system is compromised by any sort of illness. So, um, sort of just double preparing in every way, again, with the first wave group uh, to accommodate. And if, again, there, there is a, a case, then we would quarantine separate. Uh, in some cases, coming back to campus, um, we have thousands of international students coming from potential hotspots. So oh. if, if we do have an in-person fall semester, there's even conversation about do those students, should we segregate those students for a period of time, quarantine, if you will, until we're sure that they're back, they're acclimated? I mean, again, on a metropolitan campus in a city, much like where Peter is, um, all those steps, you're, you're talking with your campus officials because you're going to emulate a lot of things that they're thinking already about for the general student body for your student athlete population. It's got to be even harder when not everyone lives on campus, too. That is true. Would you play college football without fans in the stadiums? Yeah, that has to, what percent of revenue comes from the gate? I, I think it's a third, a third, a third, guys. I, I mean, that's kind of what we have uh, of the football generated revenue, donations, tickets, TV. Uh, I'll let Jim and Scott and Peter chime in. Yeah, I, I would say, it, you know, tickets are a big part of it. In our school, it's, you know, $12 million or so. Um, and at, you know, other schools, it's more or less depending on the size of their stadiums. Uh, but I do think um, if we could, if the student athletes could participate and we start without fans and then we social distance fans, uh, we've developed plans for all of those, how to keep the facilities safe, how to use some of the things we've learned uh, when we go to some of the shopping centers and, you know, and, uh, you know, the, how they've distanced, what they've done, how they control entry, uh, all of those things are part of the plans that we've developed. And, and again, if we can do it safely, we'll do it. And if we can't, uh, I think everyone will, um, you know, we'll have, we won't have fans in there or we'll have social distance fans in there. What about if, if, if some states will allow fans and others wouldn't? I, I know in California, the bar is probably going to be a little uh, tougher for you, Jim. Would, would you have alternative sites that are out of state? Yeah, no, we haven't spent much time looking at uh, 
playing out of, you know, going out of state. I will say, um, predict nothing, prepare for everything. I heard a very famous uh, AD say that recently, but uh, um, I, I, I think we've looked at every single possible option and there's nothing off the table. And um, yeah, that, that's probably the best way to say it. What about um, kind of rollover impact? I mean, obviously football's a big revenue generator, whether it's from the third, from the, from the fans or, um, you know, TV and everything else whether you come partial back or fully back a lot less revenue, do you anticipate that this is going to have an impact on some of the other programs or, or, you know, there's gotta be some impact, I guess. What, what, how, how, how are people going to, how are you, how are the universities going to deal with, with um, you know, even, even if it does come back without fans, some of the budgetary impacts that, that this is going to cause, I guess, start with Scott. Uh, thanks for the easy question, Walt. Um, <laughs> That you know that that's that's one of those painful uh, things yeah. that that uh, you have in your in your drawer. Uh, you know, break the glass in case of emergency, and um, you know it's it's going to impact our staff um, initially. You know, the last group you're going to try to impact is your student athletes. You know, you're going to try to keep all of them on scholarship. They're on scholarship. You're going to try to continue to support them nutritionally and health wise. Um, but the fact of the matter is, as you start making decisions. Uh, that impacts staff, whether it's salary reductions or furloughs or anything like that. Um, those people are there to support those athletes. They're on our staff for the very reason to support our athletes. And so as you start impacting them, you are in some way impacting the experience you're providing the athletes. And um, that's, that's something that I know I lay awake at night. And I know Jim and Chris and Peter probably do the same thing is um, if this thing if our ecosystem is dramatically altered once we start up a new school year coming up this fall, um, what kind of long-term impacts is that going to have on the experience we're providing? Not only our athletes, but you know, the, another group that we really impact significantly is the campus community at large and and the people who engage with our universities through our athletic programs. And um, you know, you, you just worry about long-term impacts if you start having to make really deep cuts because we're not able to have a, a regular athletic year. I mean, Peter, you've got probably, I mean, as you said before, you're sort of in the, the, the hottest bed of COVID. You know, that's obviously where all of us live in the New York tri-state area. Um, you know, how do you, like, what does the process even look like? I mean, is the, has the mayor given you or governor given you any real visibility into how he thinks about some of these issues? Because it seems like you're sort of in a uniquely, you know, even though you can start later, you're probably in one of the toughest positions out there. Yeah, obviously, there's still a lot of res, uh, restrictions that exist in New York City and in New York State. And we listen to our governor on a regular basis and our mayor, but also we, we listen to what's taking place in the on the campus. And so there's a lot of different scenarios based upon what, what could potentially happen. And so one of the things that we're modeling out, we have 31 sports, we have 800 student athletes. We want to give all of our student athletes the opportunity to compete. So, you know, we may look at a hybrid model in the fall, but we also may look at a model by which our teams have the capacity to, to a restrictive schedule, maybe Ivy League centric, that all of our 31 teams would have the opportunity to compete potentially just within the parameters of the spring schedule, of the spring semester. And so those... Those are scenarios that we're looking at. We think that uh, just based upon where we are, it's going to be a little bit more complicated. It's going to be a little bit more challenging. So as we push it further out, what opportunities will present themselves? I think all of you 
probably have um, involvement with Learfield or JMI or, you know, you have different relationships where you pay out to all of these organizations. You know, do you have like, can you restructure contracts so that you only pay with shorter seasons with, I mean, if there's no seasons for certain sports, like are, how does all of that, like, do you end up getting relief, I guess, is really the question. Because I know you have, I know this kind of whole system that's been built up by kind of Learfield over the years, I'm sure is, is, is taxing if you don't have revenue coming in. And so I'm just wondering, like, is there forms of relief that you can actually get that that help ease the pain on a university from lesser revenue and, and is it on hold is it currently on hold the sponsorships you know that um those sponsorships are direct you know result of what's going on in our economy so thus far they've the indication we've gotten we've gotten is that uh you know they're 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 selling um but you know they're worried uh, i think it's fair to say that there's a lot of concern in that industry um, about what the level of uh, their ability to provide sponsorships and in turn fulfill contractual obligations they have to our institutions. Um, they have not, you know, I've not, I've not heard anything from them as far as they're, you know, they're not planning on making payments or they're not planning on doing what, what they've uh, obligated to do. Um, but you do hear anecdotally because of the economy and because of the impact that uh, the, the last two months have had, some concern that they're going to be able to, 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 you know, maintain viability during this time. No, we, we've been working with all of our vendors who are truly like donors and partners for us at the self-sustaining nature of our businesses, athletics. Um, we don't take from the academic side. I mean, it, these, these partners of ours are very important, but I just got off a Longhorn network call and, um, Again, they've just been, ESPN has been incredibly uh, uh, consistent with us over this time. And we were talking about programming we could do next month on our network without, you know, live events. We typically don't have live events in the summer, uh, but our, our, uh, our Fanatics is our store partner. Their sales are up. Um, our, our fans and our donors are participating in renewals right now. We're above 70% right now, which is an incredible number given the, uh, price of oil, number one, where we live and where everybody lives. Um, but our donors are, I think, taking the Del Cani attitude of let's think positive. Um, and then obviously we are an IMG Learfield school, Learfield IMG school, and uh, they've been an incredible, important partner for us. But we're finding ways to leverage different exposure for um, our partners. I mean, you probably saw our Texas tailgate digital event we did a couple weeks ago. It was incredible. We had 66 million impressions of a full day of digital content and a lot of our partners got exposure there. So our great creative team under Drew Martin is we're finding ways how to do things differently. Um, and we may have to continue to do them differently depending on what COVID uh, impacts uh, with live events. Maybe we could get off the topic of, of COVID for a couple of minutes. We have about 10 minutes left. Um, move on to some more uplifting stuff like college athletes um, having the chance to uh, to get paid for name, image, and likeness. Can, can you guys all give kind of your opinion on first of all whether you whether you support that endeavor, and second of all what what the challenges are to getting that um, done across the NCAA? Maybe we could start with Peter. 
Yeah, I'll tackle this one first. We actually had a, a wrestler uh, two years ago that we went through uh, the waiver process with the NCAA as a result of some issues that he had and opportunities he had with name, image, and likeness. He had an incredible social media following that he was able to monetize. And so we went through this waiver process and we were able to get him a waiver. We set some parameters around his, his ability to not use marks and not refer to Columbia Wrestling but he was able to monetize this. And I think that's the great thing about it. If, if student athletes have the capacity to monetize their name, image, and likeness, the challenge becomes is how is that defined and what are the parameters associated with that and how far it stretches. And then, then one of my concerns also is how does it impact the recruiting process? So there's still, in my opinion, still a lot of work that needs to be done, but I'm supportive of their capacity to potentially monetize what they bring, their brand, and give them the opportunity to do that in a way that is within the structure of the amateur system of the NCAA. What about you? Hard to argue with a First Amendment right. Um, these young people are bright. They're digital natives. They're social influencers. Um, I think the the um, the only unsettling part of this is that we've got fifty states that have diff potentially fifty different laws applicable to this, um, and and no consistency really on how we will facilitate it, but. The ability for them to have a job, which really this is, we're allowing them to work um, in a different way with a little more freedom uh, is really the challenge. Uh, but we'll, like most things, it's new, but we'll figure it out. I didn't realize that gambling uh, on college sports was actually, or in college football, is the number two most bet on sport in, in the country. Um, obviously, um, you know, it's not legal in the states of which you all play, but it, it's legal everywhere else. And, and just wondering, you know, given that kind of the, the overall state economies are obviously going to be impacted, you know, no matter whether you're coming out of this quick or slow, all four of you live in states that are, are certainly being meaningfully impacted by COVID. And just wondering, do you think we see us, you know, is betting a savior here, meaning, and I don't mean specifically, you know, college betting, but given that college sports plays a huge role in betting, do you think we actually see a greater um, push towards betting and that actually helps your media rights over time go up in value because you've got much greater engagement? Jim, you're in a state that obviously is probably further, or one of the states that has not legalized. So why don't you start on that? Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if it's the savior or not. Uh, you know, I think just, just like what we talked about uh, with NIL, you know, I hear the term guardrails a lot. You know, I think there's not an AD in the country who spent, we, I mean, we all spend our lives trying to support student athletes that doesn't want to support NIL uh, as long as we can do it in a way that keeps a level playing field. And the, the same with gambling. I think, you know, when you look at that, uh, you know, you don't want your folks to get in trouble, your student athletes to get in trouble. And so, you know, how do you put the guardrails on? What other staff do you have to add to make sure that, you know, from a compliance perspective, um, that you can help your student athletes and and staff stay out of trouble. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not convinced it's going to be a savior. Uh, I'm I'm more concerned on how do we, you know, how do we just regulate it in a way that uh, allows people to stay, you know, stay out of trouble. Are you are you all selling tickets? Everyone selling tickets, like as if you're normal season selling tickets. 
Yeah, we've uh, you know it's funny we we have over a ninety percent renewal rate right now for football, and we just did our virtual select a seat, and uh, we. What does that mean? What, what does that mean? That means our fans who have um, you know elected to get season tickets can upgrade and pick their spots, and and we had just as much traffic and excitement uh, as we would if we were doing it in person. So, um, yeah, the thirst and hunger for sports is there, and. And I just have to look to the draft and see 55 million people participating in the draft and watching people in their basements. Uh, we are desperate. Uh, that, that is for sure. My brother is a Wolverine, and I told him that I would ask about the Harbaugh letter that came out a week or two ago. And he outlined some ideas for improvements to college football, um, first of which was waiting college athletes not having to wait three years to go to the NFL. I think he proposed getting rid of, uh, of red shirting in favor of five years of eligibility and uh, then being able to return post pro career to, to a scholarship. Just wanted to maybe get um, some of your impressions on, on what he outlined and whether or not you think those would be good changes to the to the college football program you know i i didn't i, I read highlights in his letter i didn't read his whole letter um but i actually i think kids should have the opportunity to go pro whenever they want to including out of high school um you know the three-year rule is not an NCAA rule that's an nfl rule um that they force on the college environment um so much like the nba and the one and done rule is an nba rule it's not an NCAA rule the, uh, but I think kids should have the right uh, and have that flexibility. Um, I, uh, uh, I, there was another, what was the other one? You said the five years and, and what was uh, the other getting rid of red shirting in favor yeah. of five years of eligibility. Yeah. But, you know, I, th I think that has some merits, certainly worth discussing. Um, you know, I, I think what you find is the people who actually work in college athletics, and, and my three colleagues here are certainly indicative of this you know, we want to help kids and we want to win games and we want to, you know, generate revenue and we want to create a lot of excitement on our campus, but we want to support kids. And if that's state image and likeness, if that's um, figuring out ways to help them further their Olympic goals uh, for, for students who are in those sports, um, you know, I, how it happens, I don't know that we're necessarily tied to ideas of the past if there's a better way to do something. When you think about, you know, what you're doing for, you know, the community, I mean, nobody knows whether there's going to be sports, let alone football, which is obviously, I, you know, for all of your schools, no matter what the size of fall football, I'm sure is integral to the culture of the school. What are you doing, um, you know, in the interim with no sports? Like, how are you communicating with just students and, and fans during this period of time? Or anything interesting that you're thinking of doing or to, to just engage people, you know, in this environment, just like we're doing with Zoom? Like, what, what, are, what are kind of the out-of-the-box thinking using technology right now? Yeah, we, we've done, we've been doing these webinars with our alumni base and with our, our, our former student athletes. We did one with Marcellus Wiley around the NFL draft, kind of his insight in terms of what it was. And then we were very fortunate. We have, we have a number of former student athletes that are on the, uh, the front lines of COVID fighting. And so we had, our team doctor had been redeployed to the ER, uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital, and one of our former swimmers that had been redeployed there. And so we had an incredible webinar 
uh, last week and just about some of the challenges that they were dealing with, mental health issues around the medical personnel at the hospitals. And so we're trying, I, the, one of the silver linings in, in this situation now, and, and Jim alluded to it before, just with some of the virtual world we're living in, we've created unique and new ways to communicate with our base. And I think everybody's clamoring for opportunities to be associated with sports. And so we've seen a lot of success around these mechanisms by which we can share information with our, with our alumni base. And I think everybody's been very, very receptive to it. You know, we just had, uh, we were finally in finals week, which means our kids have made it to this part of the finish line. Now they just got to get through next Tuesday. Um, again, amazing, uh, amazingly good shape based on, uh, we have a weekly cares meeting just to talk about the ones that are wobbling a little bit, but Everybody appears to be in the lane lines, but things that we've been doing all spring with our services staff for our student athletes and our coaches, because if you think kids can go stir crazy, uh, our group of coaches, I mean, they miss it too. And uh, I was just watching as we logged on here, our mental health, behavioral health staff has been doing uh, weekly mental health sessions, not uh, for our coaching staff and our regular staff. Um, this week's subject. We need to tap into a couple of those. I'm sorry. I think we might need to t tap into a couple of those mental health oh, sessions. Hey, last we week was with the, this stuff. Last week was uh, the importance of good sleep. The week before that was dealing with stress. That was just for our staff. But again, all of these we types of that. things were available to our kids. And uh, God bless our kids. They really have handled this. Again, I'm sure they miss the camaraderie, miss being in rooms with each other, but they've really handled this with a lot of aplomb. We're really proud of them. And uh, like I said, they can't wait to get back together. But uh, well, I'm sure I'm sure the hard part of this, though, is right, is that the, the, the students aren't the ones generally who are getting sick. And so they're, you know, I assume the schools and the universities are more worried about the people our age, professors, coaches, staff like yourselves. That's got to be the hardest part on the students that this doesn't really affect, I, I shouldn't say doesn't, there's a lot much lower risk for the students than there is for everybody else on campus. Plus they know they're invincible, right? At that age. <laughs> I remember that feeling. <laughs> okay. One last one for me. Um, under over for each of you, how many football games is your school going to play this year? Number one and number two, how many wins will you have? Let's start with Christine. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take the Dal Connie cue. I'm gonna say all of them, all of them. Nice, I love it. Undefeated season. We got one undefeated. I'll, I'll join. I'll join. Uh, with Chris there. We only play 10 games, so we can win 10 games, and we're going to win 10 games. And you're going to play all 10, Peter? I, I sure hope so. I mean, there's a scenario by which we play just an Ivy League schedule, which would be seven contests. Yep. But, uh, you know, our desire and ambition is if we potentially shift to the spring, I think that the scenario would be just an Ivy League schedule, but we're optimistic about the fall as it stands right now. Right, Scott. What about you? Um, well, I think, I think we'll play all 12 regular season games and, and then we'll win the SEC championship. And uh, since I'm on the college football playoff selection committee, I have to recuse myself as far as seeding. But there's two other potential games out there after that. So, um, you know, it's so funny you, you bring this up, uh, Brandon, because, uh, you know, usually this is the time of year when people are talking 
win totals and expectations and, you know, who's going to be the new running back and that kind of thing. And uh, all of that seems to have been missing uh, during the last two months. So uh, thanks for bringing us back to our former reality and hopefully our, our soon to soon future reality. Scott, is, is the SEC going to be like the <laughs> What did you say, Brandon? Sorry. Yeah, this is a very optimistic crowd, although we didn't get Jim's answer yet. Hold on. Before before Jim's answer, Scott, is is the SEC, do you think, would be similar than the Ivy League, that um, if you can just play in the SEC, that they would move forward the season that way? Because obviously a lot of those states seem like it would be more doable, um, you know, given the climates. Yeah. You know, I, I do think um, if there was a situation where we had teams on our schedule, non-conference teams on our schedule who could not play, uh, we would probably look to replace them with, with other teams, hopefully in our footprint they could. You know, you, when people talk about conference-only schedules, um, you know, it sounds really neat and compact, but, you know, we have a non-conference opponent in Florida State that we play every year. They're located two hours from here. We're in the same state. If we can play, they're going to be able to play, yep. and there's no reason for us to eliminate that game for our schedule for what it means to the people of the state of Florida. Um, and similar, you know, most of our non-conference games – uh, are regionally based, not all of them, but most of them are. So I, I think we would look at trying to find dance partners in that scenario if we had to replace some schools who couldn't play. All right, Jim, what's your answer? All right, so we have 12 home games, and uh, obviously we're going to win those. <laughs> and then for our fans, uh, winning at the Rose Bowl is even more important than a national championship. So so that's my prediction. We're going we're gonna to win at the Rose Bowl this year. We've been waiting a long, long time. And, uh, you know, that's where we're going. I laugh when we won our game, our last game of the season this year in basketball. It was the first time since 99 we'd won our last game. And our coach said, yeah, we're only nine games away from a national championship after that win. And so he's pretty positive, too. He's a glass half full guy. So I'm, I'm looking for that Rose Bowl. I was, I was really hoping one of you guys would be like, yeah, we'll play them all, but we're only going to win four games this year. <laughs> hey, 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 Brandon! Brandon, we played in the Rose Bowl in 1934, so maybe we got a shot of getting back too. I, I will say there's one last question from the crowd that I just have to ask. So, someone asked the question: Since Texas and Florida look like they're going to be the easiest schools to reboot, why don't you two just play each other a bunch of times this season? I we got a game. We got a game. Sonny and Strickland to get that schedule. <laughs> I want to play them the week after their OU game. I know they'll be beat up and we'll be rested. Let's go. <laughs> um, we've had you for just over an hour. This is really kind of all of you to take the time. I hope everyone on your staff is safe and healthy. I hope the season starts as you hope on time. I hope all sports, not just football, starts on time. And um, I just really appreciate everyone taking the time on behalf of my partners at Lightshed. Uh, be safe, be healthy, and talk to you all soon. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you much. Rich. Thanks. 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 Thank you. Go Quakers.